Well, a few weeks ago, Pastor Paul preached a four-message series on the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, and it was an excellent series. I, I especially love the passage in chapter 3 that we went through in the last message of that series. It's in verses 17 to 19. It says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's, it's a passage that has encouraged me and blessed me over the years many times, and I think we all love the sentiment in those verses. My question is, as I was sitting there and I was hearing this being preached, I was wondering how many of us really believe it. I was wondering how many of us could really say that under the circumstances that Habakkuk was describing, the devastation in the circumstances. Could we rejoice in the Lord? Could we have joy in our soul in the God of our salvation? And I think the only way we can resonate with those verses and sincerely rejoice in our souls in circumstances like that is if we have a grasp of what we really have in our relationship with God. If we grasp what incredible treasure we have in our salvation. I'm convinced many Christians know they have salvation in Christ, but they don't really know what they have. That happens a lot with things in life. Have you guys seen the Antiques Roadshow? It's fun sometimes to turn on the Antiques Roadshow. Basically, people bring in their things, and they have experts look at them to determine the value of what they really have. So somebody goes to a garage sale, and they, they buy a painting for 30 bucks, and they put it on the wall, and then they wonder, well, I wonder what that's really worth. Is it worth anything? So they bring it to the Antiques Roadshow, and they find out that it was a, it's a nice painting, and it's worth about three-quarters of a million dollars. It's an original from some artist that they never heard of. They knew they had a painting, and it was nice on the wall, but they didn't really know what they had. And once they knew, it changed their life. This morning, I want to take a closer look at some of the glorious fruit of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at some of them that you have maybe thought about a lot, maybe some of them you haven't thought about quite as much. And there's a lot of texts we could go to to look at that exalt the treasure that we have in Christ. But we're going to look at the New Testament book of Romans in chapter 5. And I chose Romans 5 for a bunch of reasons. It's because I love this passage. It's because I need this passage. And I believe you need this passage. It's only five verses long, but it's just absolutely loaded with encouragement and spiritual insight. And they're insights that every believer needs to take to heart and sink deep into, into their souls and let it encourage them. Of course, these are not the only blessings of our justification, not by a long shot, but Paul gives us some very encouraging insight and encouragement in these verses. But first, we need to understand uh, a word that's in our passage, um, a key word, 
and that's the word justified. So before we get to Romans 5, we're going to look at Romans 3. So turn there. I'm going to look at one paragraph in Romans 3 before we move on. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and he spends the first part of the letter explaining in great detail that every human being is a sinner. Every human being is responsible to God for their sin. Jew, Gentile, religious, non-religious, every human being has sinned and fallen short of God's standard and disobeyed God. And because of that, we are accountable to him. Every human being needs a Savior, says Paul, and we receive forgiveness and salvation in only one way. By God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He says that all who have recognized their sinfulness and have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior are justified. But what does justified mean? Justified is a term that derives from the law courts. And in the context of the New Testament, it means to be declared righteous by God on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ. To be declared righteous by God on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So let's see how Paul uses this term in Romans chapter 3, and then we'll go to chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 21 through 26. It's been called the single most important single paragraph in the whole Bible. And it's called that because it's an absolutely brilliant, deep, brief summary of the truths of the gospel. It answers the question of how we become righteous before God. Listen for the connections in this paragraph between righteousness, justification, and faith. Starting in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, here's our term, justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of those of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here we see a phenomenal summary of the gospel. Jesus came and he died on a Roman cross, and when he did that, he took your sin and my sin on himself and bore the judgment that was due to us in our place. So how are you justified? Through faith in Jesus and his work on the cross. By God's grace alone, the, Paul says it's a gift. It's grace alone, not works oriented in any way. It's received by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And if you have never consciously submitted yourself to Christ, if you have never received him by faith, I would urge you 
Don't delay. Don't delay. It's the most important decision, the most important commitment you will ever make in your whole life. Trust in Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's how theologian Wayne Grudem defines justification. He says, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and number two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. Only by faith in Christ. And not only did the justification of God bless us with forgiveness and salvation and righteousness in Christ, that would be enough, right? Wouldn't that be amazing, Just if it was just that? But he describes even more things that are ours now that we have been justified by faith in Christ. So let's turn to chapter 5. We'll look at the first five verses. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says, since or because we have been justified by faith, there are four glorious fruits or blessings that are now ours. The first glorious fruit I want to look at of our justification is this. Number one, forever peace with God. Forever peace with God. Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's been a lot of talk about war lately, again, right? It's hard not to get angry when we think about the war that's going on in Ukraine, this unnecessary, brutal war that's going on. And our hearts are just grieving about it and about all the devastation and all the lives that are being affected and ruined. There's been wars and conflicts going on all over this world throughout history. There's actually been very few years throughout all of human history where there wasn't war going on somewhere. And whenever there's talk about war, there's also a strong pull to restore peace we want to talk about peace now. Let's talk about peace. We want peace between nations. We want peace between groups of people. We want peace with our friends. We want peace in our family. We want peace in our soul. But as important as all of those are, they're important for sure. By far, your greatest need is peace with God. By far, nothing even comes anywhere close your need of peace with God. 
when someone gets to the end of their life, the main question they're going to answer is not, did I reach all of my goals? It's not, have I prepared myself and my finances? It's not, did I leave money to my kids? The number one question will be, am I at peace with God? Do I have peace with God? You will die one day. You're going to stand before God, and you're going to give an account for your life. Do you have peace with God? And not according to you, but according to God. Are you in a state or status of peace between you and God? And it's so important for you to have an answer to that question, and sooner than later. There are some people who think you can't know that, the answer to that question until you die, right? How do you know? Friends, it would be a grave mistake to wait until you die to try to find out the answer to that question because you may be absolutely devastated by the answer. God didn't leave it a question on how you can know you have peace with God. He was very clear how you can have peace with him right now and for all eternity. In our sin, we are not at peace with God. The Bible says that because of our sin, we are enemies with God. Because of our disobedience to his commands, our neglect of him, our staying, straying away from his will, and so on. The only way to have peace with God is to have your sins forgiven through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And if you are justified by faith in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. You are no longer an enemy of God. You've been reconciled to him. The war is over. The wall that has separated you from God has been torn down. The conflict has been resolved. Harmony has been restored. And now you are in a state of peace with God, only through faith in Christ. And that happened the very second you placed your trust in Christ and what he has done for you. You have trusted in Christ, the Prince of Peace. And that state of peace with God will never be broken. It can never be broken. That's because you didn't achieve it to begin with. God did it all. He accomplished every part of it. All you did is come to him with empty hands of faith and say, Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me. I receive you as my Savior. I repent of my sin. That's all you did. God did it all. Verse 2, through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. This grace in the verse is the state of grace we have in our peace with God, our privileged position of acceptance by God through Christ. You have been given access to this grace, and it's forever. And that's where you now stand. It's like Jesus opened the door to the kingdom of grace and peace and welcomed you in and closed it behind you, and now this is where you stand. I stand now in the kingdom of grace and peace. Our, 
Author John Stott says, Justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God or an occasional, occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the temple and in the palace. Our relationship with God is not sporadic, but continuous, not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace. Hallelujah. A huge blessing of your justification is forever peace with God. And when you stand before God one day, he will welcome you with joy into his presence. No doubt, no questions, you stand secure. And that's glorious. A second glorious fruit of our justification is the promise of glory. The promise of glory. Verse 2, the second part, it says, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The Bible talks a lot about the glory of God. God is perfect in glory. All of his infinite perfections are the sum of his glory. And from cover to cover, it's God's purpose to make his glory known to his creation, to display his glory in everything he is, in, in everything he does, so that all creation not, might not just see it, but savor it and be blessed by it and worship him for it. And the Bible says that he created you and I for his glory. That we might display his glory, that we might reflect his glory and bring him glory in the way that we live our lives. There's a number of amazing blessings of justification connected with the glory of God. Let me give you three. Number one, we rejoice, it says, we rejoice... Number one, that we one day will see the full glory of God when we're with him in heaven. We rejoice in the hope of that certainty because it's guaranteed. And this hope is unique for the Christian. There's no doubt about what we hope for biblically. It's not like, I hope it stops raining. I hope the Browns get their act together. It's not that kind of hope. Biblical hope is the joyful, confident expectation that rests on the promises of God and God's power and faithfulness to fulfill those promises. Biblical hope is the joyful, confident expectation that rests on the promises of God and God's power and faithfulness to fulfill those promises. And there will be no greater blessing, no greater encouragement and joy than to be with God in heaven, beholding his glory. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And the second blessing connected with this glory is we rejoice because God is changing us right now for his glory into greater glory. God is changing us right now into greater glory. He is shaping us and molding us into the image of Christ by his word and by his spirit so that we reflect his glory. We put off sin. We put on the righteous character of Jesus Christ. 
The transformation into greater glory or greater holiness is a work of God's sovereign and powerful grace in your life. The Apostle Paul said, as, as, as we look at, as we meditate on the glory of our Savior, we're transformed from glory to glory, from lesser glory to greater glory or Christ-likeness. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, seeing clearly, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Number three, the third glorious fruit that's connected to God's glory. We rejoice that one day that you and I will be fully glorified. You and I will be fully glorified one day. When we see Christ face to face, we'll be resurrected, we'll be given glorified bodies that are perfectly suited for eternity in heaven. We'll be morally and in every other way perfected and glorified. No more sin, no more baggage, no more shame, no more guilt. All that will be behind us, glorified. One commentator says, we'll be clothed in the glory of God's own Son. And it's certain, it's going to happen. Paul says in, in Romans 8.30, all of these steps are equally guaranteed. He says, those whom he predestined, God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All of those steps are equally guaranteed. The glorification fully hasn't happened yet, but it's as certain as all of the others. Because of our justification, we have peace with God, we stand in grace, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And all of that is a huge, huge blessing. And it's easy to see. We, it's easy to rejoice in that. And then we come to verses 3 and 4. A third glorious fruit of our justification is eternal insight into our suffering. Eternal insight into our suffering. Paul makes a pretty startling statement. He says in verse 3, not only that, what? Not only what? Not only do we have peace with God and stand in grace and rejoice in glory, not only those blessings, but this blessing too. We rejoice in our sufferings. What? We rejoice in our sufferings. I mean, I was following with you all up until that point, Paul. How does that make any sense? James says the same thing in James chapter 1. Consider it all joy when you meet various trials. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Most of us would probably say, you know, we love our salvation, but we dislike our sufferings. If we could put in an order, we'd probably order up no suffering. Thank you very much, right? Paul likely, mainly, had suffering for Christ in view, but this applies to all the kinds of suffering that we face in our lives. Suffering is difficult. It's unpleasant. Rejoice in it? Paul must know something about suffering that we don't. 
Well, he does know something. God has given the Apostle Paul divine insight into what his purposes are for our suffering. He knows that suffering has a divine and good purpose in the hands of a good and loving and wise God. He knows that God is at work in us and through us in our suffering. Verses 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing knowing what God is doing, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You can rejoice if you know that your suffering is producing or affecting something good, something that will be important for your life and glorifying to God. Here's something you always need to remember. Your suffering is never without meaning. Your suffering is never simply random, pointless pain. God is always, always, always working in your life and working through you in the midst of your suffering. Always. He doesn't waste any part of it. And he's always doing a hundred things at once. Pastor and author John Piper said, God is always at work doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware, aware of about four of them. In your pain, God is drawing you closer to himself. He is magnifying his grace in your life. He is deepening your faith. He is building endurance in your soul for future victories. He is giving you grace and strength when your strength fails. He is transforming your character into the image of Christ. He is rooting out sin in your life. He is preparing you for ministry to other hurting people. He is accumulating rewards for you and glory for your faithful suffering. He's getting glory as others see you suffering with eyes of faith and with trust in God. He's weaning you from your love from the, for this world. And he is fixing your eyes on the eternal home in heaven that we have in Christ. And in doing so, he is enlarging your hope. And a hundred other really important things. Things that you won't readily see if your eyes are focused only on your pain. Lift your eyes and see what Paul sees. See what God sees. Your suffering is never meaningless. The purpose for suffering we see here in this text is God's purpose to build your character and ultimately your hope. The Bible is clear that God is laser-focused on your growth in Christ. That's what God is up to in your life. God's purpose was never just to save you from judgment. That was never his only purpose. God is working hard every day to make you more and more like his son. God is working hard on your soul to shine up your character so that you would reflect the glory and beauty of his son Jesus, and that others would see it and be drawn to God through that. 
Listen to how Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. This is a passage we, we often associate very narrowly on marriage only. But listen to what Paul says Jesus is up to in the lives of all believers. You can turn there if you like, but I'll read it. Ephesians 5, starting in 25. Husbands, love your wives. Ah, it's a teaching on marriage. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her. Who? The church. He gave his life so that he might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus has been up to in your life. Our Savior is all about your holiness. He's all about making the church, you and I and all believers everywhere, his spotless bride. But what's the reality? The reality very often in our life is that you and I reflect Christ only so much right now. We resist his holiness we resist God's sanctifying work in us way too often. And we resist the rule and reign of Christ in areas of our life that we seem to fail to submit to him. So God is graciously and lovingly chipping away at the things that are keeping you from submitting to the rule and reign of Christ in your life. Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ to the world. And God is chipping away at the things in your life that are keeping you smelling like you and not like Christ. It's God's benevolent means of surgically removing the disease that's making you sick. That's smudging up the image of Christ and then drawing you toward holiness. And that, friends, is good. That's good. You have to see that with eyes of faith. It's good because it's God's good purpose for your life. And in that, Paul says, we rejoice. Because God is at work doing good things in my life, even through my suffering. Maybe especially through my suffering. Author Paul Tripp said this, God will take you where you wouldn't, where you haven't intended to go. God will take you where you haven't intended to go in order to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. And always remember this as God applies the pressure, He does not leave you alone. He doesn't then move away and watch from a distance. Let's see what happens. He is also lovingly walking with you. He strengthens your weak knees by his spirit. He gives you grace upon grace to walk with him and gives you peace in your soul and spurs you on. Again, Paul Tripp said, we must remember that our suffering is not in the way of God's plan, but it's part of it. In our suffering, God is not only with us, 
but also is employing it to change us and those to whom we minister. Let me say this also. Suffering does not automatically produce godly endurance and Christ-like character. It doesn't automatically happen. Suffering will make you stronger. It will produce godly character and endurance and hope if you, by God's grace, endeavor to suffer faithfully. What do I mean? If you go into your hardship kicking and screaming and fighting God and cursing God and despising what he's doing in your life, don't expect great spiritual fruit. Don't. That's a waste of your suffering. But if you go into your hardship with faith in God's goodness and wisdom, knowing God, we looked at that in Habakkuk, we have to fix our eyes on the character and nature of God. If we fix our eyes on God's goodness and wisdom with the mind and perspective of God, your suffering can accomplish much good in your life. That's what God wants for you. Now, I know full well that we're human and we're weak and we're just not strong a lot of the times. So the wind starts blowing and it's hitting hard. The wind is blowing. And so often we retreat to our bedroom and have a good cry, right? Or we get knocked off our feet. I feel it myself sometimes. I totally get it. We're not always Superman when the tornado starts ripping through the neighborhood. No one says suffering is easy. And no one will do it perfectly. But you don't learn endurance unless there's something to endure. Godly character doesn't just emerge out of nowhere. Godly character is produced when we're tested. And God wants you to lift your spiritual eyes to to him in the test. Lift your eyes. He wants to help you get back up on your spiritual feet, give you eyes of faith, and strengthen you in your inner person, and get you going again. So how can you not waste your suffering? How can you suffer faithfully so that your suffering produces eternal fruit and character and hope? Well, let me suggest some things. So you find yourself in a storm. The winds are blowing. Stop and pray. Acknowledge your pain before God. God knows it. God cares deeply about it. You should reflexively go to God and not retreat into yourself. Ask him to give you eyes of faith to see what he's up to in your hardship. He may reveal it now. He may reveal it later. But God is working. Thank him for the grace he gives you. The Lord told Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Learn to honestly and sincerely praise God for his goodness and for his wisdom and for his love in your suffering. We need to learn to be like Job. God allowed Job to lose almost everything. And what did he do? He didn't curse God. 
He worshiped. Seek out the strength that comes from fellowship with solid believers in this church. Don't retreat into yourself. Ask God for the courage to face your suffering with trust and peace in your soul. Look for ways to minister to others in your suffering. People are going through all kinds of things, and some of them are going through the same thing you're going through. God wants to use you to minister his grace through you to the other person. Have your eyes open for ministry opportunities. God, that's part of God's purpose for your suffering. Psalm 105.4 says, Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord. And God will turn your anxiety and fear to joy and peace. And as you walk by faith, God will work in you endurance and perseverance. And God will work spiritual fruit and character into your life. And your hope in God will grow as you see his power, as you see his love, as you see his grace manifested as he walks with you. So a huge blessing of our justification is eternal insight into our suffering. And the last glorious fruit of our justification we see in this text is number four, assurance of the love of God. Assurance of the love of God. Love for and from one another is a huge blessing in our lives. But there is no greater love in the universe than the divine love of our creator God. No greater love. Verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, you can endure a lot of things in your life, a lot of very difficult things, if you know without a doubt in your soul that you are loved by God. Everlastingly loved by God. And God's love wasn't just metered out in drops, like drop drop of love, drop of love. He didn't dole it out in little dribs and drabs. He poured it into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You are loved by God, friends. You are loved by God. When you are justified by faith in Christ, you are His. You are His beloved child. You have been adopted by God into His family and made a joint heir with Christ. God loves you and He will never stop loving you. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, the psalm says. And over and over, many times in the Bible, God God's steadfast love is called out. It's steadfast, resolute, firm, unwavering. Never a doubt in your life. The hope that you have in Christ will never disappoint you. It will never let you down because the hope we have is rooted in the promises of God. It's rooted in the power of God to keep his promises and his faithfulness from the God who never lies. John Stott said, What is the ultimate ground on which our hope rests? Our hope of glory. It is the steadfast love of God. The reason our hope will never let us down is that God will never let us down. His love will never give us up. 
Paul said to you, believer, that God's love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to you. In the giving of His Spirit, He lovingly saves you and seals you until the day of redemption. He guarantees your salvation. He gives you the power to live in holiness. He assures you of your salvation. He reminds you of the unfailing loving kindness of God. And where is the ultimate place that you can look to know that God loves you? Where's the ultimate place? Look to the cross. Again, stop. Talks about the love of God here. He says, in order to grasp the love of God, we need to remember that the essence of loving is giving. Moreover, the degree of love is measured partly by the costliness of the gift to the giver and partly by the worthiness or unworthiness of the beneficiary. <clears throat> the more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. Measured by these standards, God's love in Christ is absolutely unique. Listen. For in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything, his very self, to those who deserve nothing from him except judgment. In giving his son, God gave you everything. And the love of God and Christ can never be taken from you. Paul put it like this in Romans 8, 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. It's a pretty good list there. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Hallelujah for that. Now, some of you are going through some pretty heavy things right now. I mean, I could look across this room and I could see, and I know you're going through a lot of stuff. And I'm with you in all of that. And if it's smooth sailing for you right now, listen to Romans 5. Study it. Sink it in your soul. Prepare your heart for the struggles that will come, because they will come. But be careful not to retreat into yourself. Know that God is right there walking with you every step of the way. Carrying you, working in you for your good and for his glory. Preach the truth of Romans 5 to yourself. Remind yourself of what you have in Christ. Remind yourself of the glorious fruit of your justification. Walk by faith and watch your hope and encouragement and spiritual strength and godly character grow. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you, Lord, for giving us eyes to see the true purposes of what you're doing in our lives. 
Thank you, Lord, that you have demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And Lord, I pray that if anyone is in this room or watching online or listening somewhere who does not know you as their Savior, I pray, God, that you would do your good work by your Holy Spirit and woo them by your love, by your grace, by your Spirit. Convince them of your love for them. Save their soul, I pray. And I pray, Lord, that as we walk through our lives, as we wade through the difficulties of our circumstances, that we would lift our eyes to you and see what we have in you and be blessed and encouraged. Remind us by your Spirit of the love of Christ in our souls. Be honored and glorified in our lives, Lord, and may we be the aroma of Christ to those that don't know you. May they see our hope. Do that work in us, I pray.